Hey, welcome to Gospel Community Sermon Podcast. Thanks for listening in. We hope that uh, you enjoy what you hear and that we handle the word faithfully. We'd invite you, if you have any questions or want to attend a service, to visit www.gcctroy.com. Genesis chapter 29 here this morning. Uh, It was just in January we started into the book of Genesis. We remember uh, we formatted in such a way that we decided to to work through it where we saw um, an introduction to God's character in Genesis 1 and 2, that God powerfully speaks through his word. He speaks all things into existence. And then in Genesis 3, we see this kind of, um, this kind of, uh, oh, how do you describe it, this entropy that exists in the world when, when Adam and Eve rebel against the rule and reign of God over his people, it introduces kind of this chaos. And so from Genesis 3 to 11, we see that chaos kind of working out. And now uh, in Genesis 12, all the way through the end of the book, we see this reintroduction to God's character. And that's where we are this morning. We, we come to Genesis 29 because this morning we believe that we can learn about the character of God as he reveals himself to Jacob. The world has a common theme in regard to Christians, right? Christians are all hypocrites. Ever heard that statement before? Christians are all hypocrites. A hypocrite is someone who practices uh, the practice of claiming to have moral standards or belief to which one's own behavior does not conform, right? They, they preach, but they don't practice. I remember once when I was in high school, there was an art teacher who was presenting um, uh, the Sistine Chapel ceiling, right? And that you were familiar with this painting where uh, God is straining and reaching out to touch fingers with Adam, and Adam can barely lazily lift his hand to, to touch with God. And so this art teacher is describing, see, Michelangelo, what he was doing in painting the Sistine Chapel ceiling this way was he was uh, exposing the hypocrisy of the church, and he was kind of sticking it to the church by painting this in this way. And I wish I could go back to that moment in some ways, because I, I would actually love to say to that art teacher, that's actually good theology, that sinful mankind cannot respond to God as they appropriately should. And so what she saw as hypocrisy, I see as good theology. See, when we talk about this issue of hypocrisy, we have to recognize that anyone who makes a moral claim about life is bound to contradict it. There was a a story my brother-in-law once told me. He went to a Wendy's, and uh, there were some people out front protesting. He lives in Columbus, and there were some people out front protesting, saying, you know, meat is murder. And they're there in the parking lot of Wendy's protesting the, pro, or the use of meat in food. And, and so sure enough, as my brother's walking in, this person confronts him, and he looks and he says, but you are wearing leather shoes, right? They're, they're protesting that meat is murder, but there they are wearing calfskin on their feet. See, duplicity is bound up in our nature. We are bound to be hypocrites on some level. I'm a theology nerd. And in the fourth century, there was a theologian named Augustine. And what he did is he described what our nature was before the fall of mankind. And so he used two words. He used the word passe. In Latin, it means it's possible, like we can do this. And then picare, from which we get the word 
peccadillo or sinner, right? And so he used that uh, man, before the fall of mankind, Adam and Eve, before they sinned against God, they were passe peccare. They had the possibility of sinning, but they were also passe non peccare. They had the possibility of not sinning. They had genuine choice before the fall of man. But after Adam and Eve sin, Augustine described our nature as non passe non peccare. And what that means is that we are incapable of not sinning. We are incapable of not sinning. And so it's bound up within our nature to be those who don't practice what we preach. See, if we're honest, every human being is a walking self-contradiction. We are stepping over ourselves all the time in, in what we say with what we do. Genesis 28, when we uh, last were in Genesis together two weeks ago, uh, Jacob makes a vow to God. And we think that coming out of this vow, as God has revealed himself to Jacob, and Jacob has made this vow, we might think that everything's going to immediately change for Jacob. He's going to clean himself up. He's not going to be the deceitful uh, kind of uh, person that he was before. And now he's going to, to get right. But now what happens is God takes Jacob on a 20-year hiatus. God takes Jacob on a 20-year instruction on his own character. God brings Jacob into the shop, as it were, to, to work out the kinks of his character and of his person. See, as we're here in Genesis 29, what we're going to see is that God is gracious to show us our sin. And what he's doing with Jacob is slowly, over time, he's exposing his own character to him through the character of Laban. We're going to see our, our big idea. God is gracious to show us our sin in two different segments. The first act, as it were, is in Jacob uh, when he finds Laban in verses 1 through 14 of chapter 29. And the second act is when Laban deceives Jacob in verses 15 through 30. This morning I want to stop and I want to pray because we're, we're reading a story from God that's recorded to us. And I want us to stop and ask God to, to, to speak to us to actually unveil his character to us here this morning. Lord, we do. We ask now that as we read this story of Jacob, that you would show yourself to us. This isn't just about Jacob and Laban. This is about you. So, Lord, we ask us to show yourself to us. We ask you to show yourself to us. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to start in chapter 29, verses 1 through 14, where Jacob finds Laban. In verses 1 through 3, Jacob discovers these shepherds from, from Haran. Look at verse 1 with me. Then Jacob went on his journey and came to the land of the people of the east. And as he looked, he saw a well in the field, and behold, three flocks of sheep lying beside it, uh, for out of that well flocks were watered. The stone on the well's mouth was large, and when all the flocks were gathered there, the shepherds would roll the stone from the mouth of the well and water the sheep and put the stone back in its place over the mouth of the well. And Jacob said to them, My brothers, where do you come from? And they said, We are from Haran. And he said to them, Do you know Laban, the son of Nahor? And they said, We know him. He said to them, it is, is it well with him? And they said, It is well. And see, Rachel, his daughter, is coming with the sheep. He said, Behold, it is still high day. It is, is it not time for the livestock to be gathered together? Water the sheep and go pasture them. 
But they said, we cannot until all the flocks are gathered, gathered together and the stone is rolled from the mouth of, of the well, and then we will water the sheep. Might stop and say, why are we talking about this, Right? I mean, this seems pretty mundane, but what's happening is as Jacob is traveling from Canaan all the way to Paddan Aram or to uh, Nahor, the city of Nahor, he comes to this group of shepherds, and he has no idea where he is. There's no street signs or anything else, and he stops and he asks this group of shepherds, hey, where are you from? And they said, we are from Haran. And that's exactly where Jacob was looking to go. And what, what happens then is this series of questions from Jacob. It's like your mom used to ask you when you were 15, right? There's just this barrage of questions, right? In verse 4, my brothers, where did you come from? And it's, each question is matched with a teenager kind of answer. We're from Haran, right? Verse 5, do you know Laban, the son of Nahor? We know him. Verse 6, it is, is it well with him? It is right? It's almost like you can sense them looking at their iPhones while they're sitting there, right? Verse 6 kind of highlights this, this kind of frustration that they have with them because they're like, yeah, we do know him, and here's Rachel, his daughter. Why don't you talk to her, right? And so there's this kind of initial uh, interaction between Jacob and these shepherds. So Jacob tries a different tactic in verse 7. Look at what he says. Behold, It's still high day. Is it not time for the livestock to be gathered together? Water the sheep and go pasture them. See, Jacob wonders why there's no activity being done. He he walks, as it were, on a group of teamsters saying, why isn't anybody doing anything? He's walking in on teenagers again. They're not doing anything, right? And at this point, Jacob gets his longest response in verse 8. We cannot until all the flocks are gathered together and the stone is rolled from the mouth of the well, then we water the sheep. It's as if to say, that's not how we do it around here, Jacob. Back up off me, right? And so Jacob takes action in verse 9. Look at verse 9 with me. While he was still speaking with them, Rachel came with her father's sheep, for she was a shepherdess. Now, as soon as Jacob saw the daughter of Laban, his mother's brother, and the sheep of Laban, his mother's brother, Jacob came near and rolled the stone away from the the well's mouth and watered the flock of Laban, his mother's brother. Then Jacob kissed Rachel and wept aloud, and Jacob told Rachel that he was her father's kinsman and that he was Rebekah's son, and she ran and told her father. This is just this whirlwind of activity from Jacob, right? He sees that nothing's happening, and all of a sudden he gets up and he lifts this massive stone off of this well. He, he waters all of the sheep that are present there. He comes and kisses Rachel and then starts crying, right? Like, what does that all mean? Uh, see, all of this is kind of showing this flurry of activity from Jacob, Jacob has just decided that he's going to take it upon himself to be active, to make this thing happen. And so what he does at the very end of this is he tells Rachel who he is. And it's at this point that Rachel does exactly what Rebecca, uh, Jacob's mother, had done back in chapter 24. She meets someone from Abraham's family, and she runs back to Laban. Right? There's this similarity between chapter 24 and 29 that we'll dig into a little bit deeper later. So what happens is Rebecca or Rachel runs back and she tells Laban, her father, and then in verses 13 and 14, Laban comes running. As soon as Laban heard the news, verse 13, about Jacob, his sister's son, he ran to meet him and embraced him and kissed him and brought him to his house. Jacob told Laban all these things, and Laban said to him, Surely you are bone 
my bone and my flesh, and he stayed with him a month. Now, the last time we saw uh, someone from Abraham's house show up, Laban got rich. If we went back to chapter 24, Laban sees these gold bracelets on his sister's arms, and he takes off running to go meet Abraham's servants. You remember that from chapter 24? Well, he also got rich later on as this servant of Abraham gave uh, costly ornaments, the text says in 2453, gave costly ornaments to Laban and to the entire household. So now Laban doesn't just walk, he runs to go meet this other person from Abraham's household. And this is the man that Jacob decides to spill his guts to. Look at what he says in verse 13. He said, uh, he ran to him and met him and embraced him and kissed him and brought to him his house. And Jacob told Laban all these things. See, Jacob spills his guts to Laban, right? He tells him all about himself, everything that's happened. We're presumed, uh, we're left to assume that Laban knows about Esau and the blessing, about Esau's desire to kill him, about his mother's warning and fleeing to Laban's house, about his father's mandate to find a wife in chapter 28, uh, about seeing a vision at Bethel of God and, and the promise from God to bless him. He tells Laban all of these things. And Jacob is telling his story to the one person in the entire book of Genesis who is just as deceitful and underhanded as he's been. Through the providence of God, Jacob spills his guts to the one man who is just as wicked and turned around as he has been and dishonest and deceitful. Look at Laban's statement in verse 14. He says, surely you are my bone and my flesh. It's as if to say, you look like me. It's the same words pulled out of Genesis chapter 2, verse 23, where where God causes Adam to fall asleep. He pulls the rib out of his side. He forms the woman, and Adam wakes up and says, this is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She looks like me. And Laban is using the exact same statement to say, you look like me. If I were to put it into a meme this morning, it would look like this, right? Jacob and Laban just kind of pointing at each other, saying, you look like me. We're the same. So Jacob doesn't know it yet, but his arch nemesis has just made comment about how alike they are. Jacob's biggest enemy on the face of the earth has just made a statement about how similar they are. And it's interesting to know here that that Jacob does everything his mother Rebekah did, but he does it without God. Jacob's love story kind of matches Rebecca's. It happens in Paddan Aram. It's around a well with watering animals. I know that's a really romantic scene when you're watering your animals and everything's happening there. But even the text seems to highlight this uh, where there's these phrases that kind of hint us into these things that are are happening. So in Genesis 24, uh, before the servant had finished speaking, he was praying to God. Before he had finished speaking, uh, Rebecca shows up. And so here in verse 9, it says, while Jacob was still speaking to these servants, uh, Rachel shows up. Uh, in twenty four nineteen, Rebecca says, I will draw water for your camels also. And in verse 10, uh, Jacob waters all of Rachel's camels. In verses uh, 24, 28, 
the young woman ran. That's Rebecca ran to go meet Laban. And sure enough, that's what, what Rachel does here as well. It's all of these context clues that are kind of cluing us into this similarity between excuse me, between Rachel and Rebecca and what's happening here. In fact, the, the text kind of really clues us in. As, as Jesse was reading, it stood out so clearly this morning when uh, the text is constantly saying, uh, Jacob, uh, the daughter of Rebecca, or his mother's son, however it phrases it there. See, Jacob does all of the things that the servant of Abraham did, minus one thing. See, after the servant of Abraham meets Rebekah and realizes who she is and what household she's from, he stops and he thanks God. And I have the verse here on, on the slide for us in Genesis 24. It says, the man bowed his head, the servant of Abraham bowed his head and worshiped the Lord and said, blessed be the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who has not forsaken his steadfast love and his faithfulness toward my master. As for me, the Lord has led me in the way to this the house of my master's kinsmen. Jacob has no statement like this. That servant sees the hand of God in his task. But with Jacob, there's no such reflection. Even though Jacob has received this massive promise from God, he fails to acknowledge God in his task. See, Jacob shows us that he has great ambition without much consideration of God himself. Jacob's just stated at the end of chapter 28 that the Lord would be his God. But here he is. He's lifting rocks, watering sheep, kissing this woman without even a whisper of thankfulness to God. See, our godless ambition sometimes leads us, leaves us vulnerable and this is exactly what's going to happen here in the remainder of chapter 29. See, our godless ambition leaves us vulnerable as, as other people can kind of manipulate us according to what we want and what we desire. And so Laban sees opportunity in verses 15 through 30. Look with me there at verses 15 through 20. Then Laban said to Jacob, because you are my kinsman, should you therefore serve me for nothing? Tell me, what shall your wages be? Now Laban had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah, and the name of the younger was Rachel. Leah's eyes were weak, but Rachel was beautiful in form and appearance. Jacob loved Rachel, and he said, I will serve you seven years for your younger daughter, Rachel. Laban said, it's better that I give her to you than I should give her to any other man. Stay with me. So Jacob served seven years for Rachel, and they seemed to him but a few days because of the love he had for her. This seems like this really sweet story that's going to happen, right? Like we're kind of bucking up for this kind of, um, oh, what are those uh, Hallmark movies, right? This is, this, get out your box of tissues because that's what this is going to be about. But sure enough, it's going to get distorted. And let's kind of back up and see how the scene lays itself out for us. In verse 15, Laban wants to talk about payment with Jacob. Now, this is an odd conversation, isn't it? I mean, here you have the uncle, the, the nephew, and they want to talk about wages. In fact, throughout this section, the word serve is going to be used some five or seven times. It's going to highlight the idea that Jacob is really uh, part of an, a business relationship with Laban. 
See, Jacob jumps at the opportunity to have Rachel as his wife in verse 18. You get the sense that, that Laban almost knew that was going to happen. Has, he's heard Jacob's story. He knows that, what, that the wage he's going to ask for is one of his daughters. And so in verse 18, Jacob jumps at the opportunity to have Rachel as his wife. And the author it kind of has taken time in verse 17 to describe these two daughters. In verse 17, it describes that Leah has weak eyes. Right? First of all, we got a different Leah and Leah. You know, if you're a Star Wars person, two very different people. Leah has weak eyes. We don't know precisely what this means, but we have guesses. Some, some people think that her eyes just simply aren't attractive, and kind of in this culture, um, the eyes were kind of uh, a spot of, um, of beauty for, for a, a male to look at, right? Um, Another per, uh, commentator thinks that uh, Leah was actually cross-eyed, that she had some kind of malfunction in her vision, and so she didn't, you know, yeah, we won't go too far down that road. Whatever it means, it was contrasted with Rachel's beauty. What, what the, Moses describes for us is that Rachel was beautiful in form and appearance. Now, this same uh, kind of description is used of Joseph later on in Genesis 39. It's used throughout the Bible to kind of describe these beautiful characters. It's used of Esther and of David and all of these kind of uh, very attractive people. And so the bottom line is this, that Jacob loves Rachel. And the text highlights this in such a clear way in verse 20, right? Jacob served seven years for Rachel. What does that mean? It means typically an average worker would make about uh, a shekel a month. And so average year, you would get 12 shekels. Well, later on in the Old Testament, they would limit the bride price to about 50 shekels. You couldn't pay more than 50 shekels for a bride. This means that, that Jacob is paying some 80 or more shekels for his bride price. He is overpaying, and Laban seems to be a-okay with that. And so verse 20 says, Jacob served seven years for Rachel, and they seemed to him but a few days because of the love that he had for her. Right, there it is. He's ripe for manipulation, isn't he? And so in verses 21, or excuse me, yeah, 21 through 30, we see that Jacob is deceived by Laban, Look with me at verse 21. Jacob said to Laban, Give me my wife that I may go into her, for my time is completed. So Laban gathered together all the people of the place and made a feast. But in the evening he took his daughter Leah and brought her to Jacob, and he went into her. Laban gave his female servant Zilpah to his daughter Leah to be her servant. And in the morning, behold, it was Leah. And Jacob said to Laban, What is this you have done to me? Did I not serve with you for Rachel? Why then have you deceived me? Laban said, It is not so done in our country to give the younger before the firstborn. Complete the week of this one, and we will give you the other also in return for serving me another seven years. He gets a, a two-for-two two deal. What a, what a steal. Jacob did so and completed her week. Then Laban gave him his daughter Rachel to be his wife. Laban gave his female servant Bilhah to his daughter Rachel to be her servant, so Jacob went into Rachel also, and he loved Rachel more than Leah, and served Laban for another seven years. What's happening here? First, we see Laban sets up this wedding. Now, notice in verse 21, uh, Laban nearly forgets that he and Jacob have this deal, right? Even here, uh, there's two things kind of happening. 
First, notice how rash Jacob is. He wants his wife. Look at verse 21. Give me my wife that I may go into her. Such a crass statement from Jacob. Dads, imagine someday that your little girl is ready to marry and your father-in-law comes and says a similar statement to you or your son-in-law comes and says a statement, similar statement to you. There just aren't enough bullets at that point in time, right? Second, notice what Jacob has said. Give me my wife. Jacob's, or Laban is, is listening to this. Give me my wife. He doesn't designate that he wants to marry Rachel. And so he's kind of setting himself up. He's priming the pump for this deception. Give me my wife. And Laban's like, yeah, I'll give you a wife. And so what happens in verses 25 through 27 is Jacob unwittingly marries Leah. I've heard commentators say that that verse 25 could read, and in the morning, Leah, right? It's not like there was Leah. It's just in the morning, Leah, she was there. It's hard for us to imagine, but this... uh, is what this ceremony would have looked like. See, you would start sometime in the day and there would be a processional, excuse me, uh, from the bride's house to uh, the husband's. And there was a contract read for, for both the husband and the wife. And there was a meal to celebrate both sides of the family. And what would happen then is, is the husband, the new husband, would take his cloak and he would wrap it around his wife and the two would go to this, um, this nuptial tent and they would consummate the marriage, and that's how things work. And so the bride was, was veiled this entire time. The bride was wearing this veil to cover her face. She couldn't be seen uh, until she got into the, the nuptial tent. And so sure enough, if you had too much to drink or it was dark in the tent, it's highly possible that you wouldn't have seen who the person was. I mean, Jacob is just rife for manipulation in this whole situation. But notice what Jacob's response is in verse 25. Notice the the moral indignation that he says. He says, what is this you have done to me? Did I not serve with you for Rachel? Why then have you, what, deceived me? What is this you have done to me? It's the same question that's been asked a number of times in, in Genesis 3 and in Genesis 12. See, for the first time since we've met Jacob, he has been now acted upon. Every other time, he's the one who's manipulating and conniving. He's stealing the, the, the birthright from Esau. He's uh, doing this whole plan conni- or made up by his mother so that he can manipulate Esau and Isaac into giving him the blessing. And the second question at the end of verse 25, why then have you deceived me? Isn't that an interesting way to state things? You know, back in chapter 27, when Isaac and Esau first discovered that that Jacob had tricked them, Isaac uses this same term to describe Jacob, deception. Now, Jacob is the one who's been deceived. And there we have it, right? Jacob's duplicity in all of its ugly detail It was acceptable in Jacob's eyes to deceive Esau on two separate occasions, but now that it's done to him, there's just this moral outrage at what's happened. Jacob doesn't even realize that he's kind of crossing over his own law, right? He's become 
a hypocrite in, in so many senses of the word. So what happens is Jacob agrees to marry Rachel, and so they wait a week for the wedding ceremonies to be done, and then there's another wedding. And Jacob commits that he's going to work for another seven years for Rachel as well. Verse 26, uh, Laban gives this lame excuse. That's not how we do it here. We marry the first, the older first, and then the younger. But Laban, uh, you know, we look back across the conversation. There's no way that Laban didn't know that Jacob wanted to marry Rachel. It's here. The deceiver gets deceived. Let's stop and just think about this for a second. Laban uses Jacob. But we can also say that it's true that God is going to use Laban. Laban is one who who wants to use Jacob to just kind of wring all of the benefit out of him that he can possibly get. He's going to labor him for 14 years. He's going to get extremely wealthy off of the presence of Jacob. Uh, But God is going to use Laban as well for his purposes. Jacob has met his match with Laban, but Laban mirrors back to Jacob what Esau and Isaac must have experienced in Jacob's presence. It's here the deceiver gets deceived. It's in Laban that Jacob has his sin exposed for what it is. And we stop and we just consider all of this. and say, what's this story all about? What does this show us about the character of God or about who we are? It's a recognition this morning that it's a grace of God when we see our sin. It's a grace from God for us to see our sin. And God is sending Jacob down this trajectory, down this path where he will finally get his sin exposed to him. He'll finally see the benevolence of a good God. What will happen here is is Jacob's going to wrestle with Laban. He's wrestled with Esau. He's wrestling with Laban. Someday he will wrestle with the angel of the Lord, and he will come out limping because of it. See, Jacob's got this mindset where he can just manipulate any situation he finds himself in, and God wants to strip that from him. See, we ourselves also are recipients of grace when when God exposes us in our sin, doesn't he? See, here's the recognition this morning. The the Bible tells us that we believers have two natures. We have two natures bound up in us. Galatians 5 on the screen behind me says that the desires of the flesh are against the spirit and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh for these are opposed to each other uh, to keep you from doing the things you want to do. So Paul is describing for us who we essentially are, that before we were in Christ, we were what Augustine called us, we were uh, non-pecare, or or non-passe, non-pecare, unable not to sin, right? Excuse me, that was a mess, but anyway. Uh, And now, as we've come to new life in Jesus Christ, we're infused with the Holy Spirit. The Spirit resides in us, giving a second nature to us. And Paul is describing these two natures war within us. So it's common for us to feel like we are self-contradicting people. It's common for us to uphold a biblical ethic that at times we don't uphold ourselves in our actions. Are you familiar with the story of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde? 
It's a piece of literature from years ago, not just a weird, creepy story. It's a piece of literature that's describing this character, Dr. Jekyll, who finds a chemical formula to, to get rid of his uh, base desires in this Mr. Hyde. And so he takes this chemical, it changes his person, his nature, and that person goes out and acts on the worst impulses of his nature. But over time, he can't control when Mr. Hyde shows up. And it eventually ends in his own self-destruction. See, we ourselves are Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. We have this sinful nature that will control us if we don't find new life in Christ. And so the Bible describes that we have these two essential natures. But it also describes what we call double-mindedness. And it also describes another term called hypocrisy. See, the book of James uses the term double-mindedness in James 1.8 and 4.8. And the double-minded man is one who is married to God but keeps the world as his mistress. He is led by passions and desires. And the end result of this duplicity is one who wanders from God because of his preference for his passions. I'm going to ask Dan to bring up a graphic that we've created here. And see, we've described that believers have the desires of the flesh and the desires of the Spirit leading to an inherent duplicity. But a double-minded man is led by his passions to disobey God. See, yet a further degree is this thing that we call hypocrisy. Jesus speaks about hypocrisy uh, most notably in Matthew chapter 6 and in Matthew chapter 23. Jesus describes Pharisees as hypocrites. We all know what a hypocrite was, right? We've heard this whole discussion of the word. A hypocrite was an actor. It was someone, uh, back when they used to do Greek and Roman plays, they would, they would uh, act for multiple characters. And so what they would have is they have masks. And when they were this character, they'd put on this mask. And when they were this character, they'd put on this mask. And so they described themselves as hypocrites. Those actors were called hypocrites. They were false faces. And so when Jesus is describing these Pharisees as having hypocrisy, he's describing that they leverage their religious distinction to accomplish their desired end. See, what, what the double-minded does is he's led by his passions, and unwittingly he's led to do something that he doesn't want to do, but the hypocrite is something who puts on religion as kind of like a, a, a mask, as it were, so that he could manipulate the situation. Jesus speaking to these scribes and Pharisees. In in Matthew 23, he says, "'Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you travel over land and sea to make a single convert and make them twice as much a son of hell as you are.'" He says, "'You have no access to the kingdom of God yourself, and yet you uh, proclaim these things that you don't keep yourself.'" He says to them, you know, you are whitewashed tombs. In Matthew chapter 6, he describes that they they have these patterns of of giving to the poor, of praying in public, and of fasting in public so that they could be seen and heard. And Jesus says about them, they've received their reward in full, that there's no future reward for their activity as they hypocritically put on these actions to leverage religion for their own purpose. There's something else that I think we need to see in Genesis 29. We, we could talk about how Jacob was duplicitous, whether he was a hypocrite or, or whatever else, but we need to see something else from, from Genesis chapter 29, and it's this, that our God so intensely devoted himself to his people that he's committed to exposing 
their sinful inconsistencies. Stop and think about that for a second. God made a promise in Genesis 28 that he would be Jacob's God. And it's here in Genesis 29 that he's introduced to this character that will bring this massive frustration uh, to the surface of Jacob's life, that will bring all of these inconsistencies and inadequacies to the surface of Jacob's life. And God desires to deal with those things in his servant, doesn't he? See, our God is one who is intensely devoted to his people, so much so that he's going to expose the inconsistencies of our soul. He's going to expose the hypocrisies, the the things that are deep within us. See, it's interesting to note that when God commits to be present with Jacob in chapter 28, he also brings him into the shop in chapter 29. That is, God has promised to be with Jacob, and now And he will also expose Jacob's duplicity. From here on out, what's going to happen is Jacob will try to manipulate Laban. He's wrestled with Esau. He'll wrestle with Laban. But someday he'll try to wrestle with God himself. And it won't work. As long as he continues to do the things that he does on his own, in his own godless way, full of ambition, full of energy, this whirlwind of activity, what he'll always wake up to is Leah and not Rachel. See, specifically, God is going to expose Jacob's character by putting him in contact with someone just like himself. God's going to use the mirror of Laban in Jacob's life. You know, it's true. It's Thanksgiving week, right? We need to talk about this. Sometimes the thing that drives us crazy about our family is how similar they are to us, right? You're about to have a Thanksgiving meal with crazy Uncle Joe. Well, maybe I shouldn't you know, never mind. We won't go there. As long as it's under 10 people, you're fine, right? So when your crazy Uncle Joe won't stop talking about the election over Thanksgiving dinner this Thursday, ask yourself this question. Why do I not want him to talk about the election? Because you also care greatly about the election, don't you? And it's offensive to you when he talks about it from the opposite side. See, the things that frustrate us most are the things that remind us most of our own inconsistencies and inadequacies and weaknesses. God sends Jacob to a man who is incredibly like him. Laban is this opportunistic person, just like Jacob. Laban is this dishonest individual, just like Jacob. Laban is deceptive, like Jacob. But here's the truth this morning. Being made aware of our sin doesn't deal with it appropriately. God can make us aware of our sin and show us all of our sinful um, inadequacies, all of the things about us that are inconsistent and, and wrong, but it still doesn't change the fact that we've sinned. See, while we are double-minded, we are people that have these two natures, and we find ourselves in constant uh, self-contradiction. There was one who came to the earth who was single-minded, who was consistently devoted to the will of his Father. And he expresses time and time again in the book of John that he came to do what his Father has told him to do. Listen to this in John chapter 5, verse 19. Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord. 
but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, the Son does likewise. I can't do anything that the Father hasn't shown me to do. Jesus is laser-like in his focus and his singularity toward his Father. In, in Luke chapter 9, there's this discussion of like he has ministered in all of these different places, and it describes at the end of Luke 9 that he sets his eyes toward Jerusalem. He set his face toward Jerusalem because he knew he was going to die. Jesus is taking on the will of the Father. Father, and that will of the Father is driving him closer and closer to Calvary. In his single-mindedness, he lays down his life so that his Father might resurrect him to newness, so that you and I might be resurrected with him. How do you get rid of your double-mindedness, of your duplicity? You are resurrected to new life in Christ, so that you are no longer a slave to sin, But now you are set free from that slavery to sin to live in the newness of life that Jesus has created for you. See, God exposes all of Jacob's duplicity through Laban, but he shows me all of my duplicity through the singularity of Jesus Christ. Through the flawless, spotless example of Jesus, he shows me who I am. And he calls me to come and die with Christ. See, Jesus' resurrection gives us new life to no longer be slaves to sin. You say, what? How does that change anything about my life? How does that change what I do this afternoon when I'm watching the football game or or tomorrow when I go to work or, or Thursday when we have less than 10 people at my house? What do I do? See, here's the upshot of all of this. We can trust God. We can trust the God who wants to deal with our sin. We can trust him to deal with our sin in his time. It's easy for us to become discouraged, isn't it? We, we think about ourselves and we look at all the faults that we have. I turned 40 this year. And I remember describing to somebody, uh, they're saying, well, what's it like to turn 40? I was like, I don't know. Your teeth fall out, your hair, you know, everything. I was deeply depressed about the whole 40 thing. But I, I said this. I said, I thought I would be farther along than this. I, I thought I, would, I wouldn't struggle with the things I still seem to be struggling with. I thought I would have more wisdom to offer my family, and to others at the church, I thought I, would, I thought I would be farther along. You know, when I considered as a 20-year-old or a 30-year-old what it would look like to be 40 years old, I, I just envisioned my life would be more put together than I feel like I am. And underneath that is the statement of, of I was unhappy with how the Lord had been working in me. And I had to just stop and say, hey, you know what? It's up to the Lord how he sanctifies Someone gently, lovingly reminded me of that, that it's the Spirit who decides what he wants to work on and when he wants to work on it. And and it's my job to make myself fully available through uh, the reading of Scriptures and prayer and and self-denial and patterns of of righteous living. But at some point, we recognize that it's the Spirit who sanctifies us. So God has committed to us that he will sanctify us, right? Philippians 1 He who began a good work in you, he'll be faithful to the day of completion. 
And so God has promised that there's no one who will be in his presence that hasn't also been sanctified. And so we recognize that at some point God's going to eradicate all those sins. It might not be in this lifetime. It might be on the threshold of the door of heaven. God will strip us of that sinful nature and take that sin away from us. But we recognize from stories like Genesis 29 that God is committed to stripping away that sinfulness of his people, to bringing it to the surface so that we can recognize it and we can find fresh grace in his presence. So here's my encouragement. Let's be a people who commit ourselves to being single-minded today. Don't worry about the thing that has happened in your history that's forgiven and covered by the grace of God in Christ. And don't worry about the things that will happen in the future. Each day has enough worries of its own. Let's be those who are single-minded with a steadfast resolution to be like Christ through the resurrection that we've received in him to bring honor and glory to him today because we can't worry about tomorrow and we can't worry about yesterday. Let's be those who are steadfast in this resolution to be like Jesus right here and right now. And we'll let God bring up the things that he needs to bring up in the future. We'll let God deal with the shame that we have in our past. I want to pray to this end this morning. I want to pray that God makes us a people who who take on the character of Christ, who take on the the urgency of the moment to, to reflect God's character to him. Let's pray. Lord, we ask now that you would do just that, that you would accomplish your purpose in your people, that you would shape and mold us as you see fit. Help us not to hear a message about your commitment to sanctify us and and throw up our hands in passivity. Help us to be diligent in the things that you call us to, the study of your word uh, relating to you in prayer, the practices of righteousness, the fellowship that we experience together. But Father, help us not to try to take credit for things we have no business taking credit for. Shape and mold us according to the image of your Son. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.